Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I think that one of the lessons that we've learned, one of the takeaways I think we can take with us over the next several years is that just because we've done something a certain way for the last 25, 35, 55 years doesn't mean that that's the best way or that that's the way we have to do it going forward. We can be creative, we can be inventors, we can test ideas. To me, that's exciting. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. I want to talk with you about tomorrow. What do we need to know today that could benefit us in the future? Chris Himeter is playing an active role in financing our future. He's an independent restaurateur, a venture capitalist, and a thought leader within our industry. His company is financing the solutions that will change the face of our industry. Today, we talk about what's being built today and how it will support us in the future. I mean, it always starts with, he's an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur. He's passed yeah. away a while ago, but he was crafty. He had moxie. He started so many different companies along the way, and he was never afraid. He was always leaning forward. And then that sort of happened to occur in a mind that also was incredibly creative and persuasive and dynamic. And so, yeah, he was just sort of a magical, creative genius. But like many incredibly intense creative geniuses, he had only one speed and it was full throttle. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, miss him. I wish he was still here with us. It seems like just an amazing mentor, mentee. Like for those that aren't familiar, I mean, not only was he like a really successful hotelier, but I mean, he started a football league. Yeah. I mean, he went toe to toe with Edwin Edwards over a casino deal. <laughs> right. I mean fascinating guy. And I'm curious to know, in growing up with someone that exhibited such fearless traits, how did that inform the way you entered your career? Was it contagious? Yeah, it was utterly contagious. <laughs> I've never had a real job. I've spent my entire life creating everything that I do. I started seven companies and ultimately started a venture capital firm because I realized I was hopelessly ADD and needed to be constantly stimulated. And it's the only profession I have found that's been able to deliver that. There's a way that he embraced work as a cosmic board game. And he attacked it with joy and fun and moxie. And he just didn't have sort of a fundamental fear of failure. His definition of success was the ability to overcome failure because he said every entrepreneur is about taking at bat. So you can't overcome failure, which you will have, then you probably shouldn't play the game. He lived by that until the very end when he struck out, right? But he inspired, I think, creativity, confidence, sort of a butterfly catcher's nature in me, which has been a part of my spirit ever since. 
Well, there's this through line because whether you're looking at his career or yours, you have made massive bets and continue to do so. And so I would be curious to know, because they don't all pan out, right? Most do. Your batting average is superb, sir. (laughs) But having said that, what is your perspective on fear and failure? And how do those two things motivate you? How do you engage with those feelings and those experiences? I think that the way that we think about risk is one of the most important things in life generally. And you see vast differences in the way we think about risk culturally across the world, personally within our own lives. And I think that being raised in a family that was just all about sort of embracing risk almost as a fuel for enthusiasm and so forth, it just had a huge impact on me. And what I have found along the way is that failure is not a shameful experience unless you're trying to hide the truth. If you're honest with your investors, you're honest with people who come with you on the journey, and then you're square-shouldered and standing up to them when you do fail, because I've definitely, several of my companies have completely failed. And I've lost people's money, lots of money. But they came into the venture with me knowing it was risky. They were shooting for those high returns. And when they didn't work out, I was the guy who stuck around to tape up the boxes. And that's key, right? I think that the key is if you're going to swing and you're going to get in the game of, of starting a business, of being an entrepreneur, you just want to be honest with your investors, make sure that nobody's investing money that they can't afford to lose. And then if it turns bad, you stand there toe to toe and you tell them the truth about what's going down and you finish the wind up and make it clean. I have had investors who have lost money on me who have bet again and subsequently backed me. And it's because of the way I dealt with the ones that didn't work. I think that's really important. And that's been a good lesson for me. And now as a venture capital investor, you can imagine a significant percentage of the companies I invest in subsequently don't work. I mean, that's just very normal. And the CEOs and founders that sort of stick around and deal with it with high integrity and shut it down, those are people that I still have good relationships with and people that I'll support in the future. And those that sort of jump and run when it starts to not look like it's going to work, that's a bad thing. Those are people that I won't back again and wouldn't want to support. In my mind, there's this differentiation between a business and a company. Like a business is day-to-day operations and company is your valuation, what somebody could potentially buy. And I feel like independent restaurant owners and operators do a really good job of creating great businesses, but not necessarily great companies. Mm. And you are definitely a man that specializes in creating companies that have value. You've done it many times, built it from scratch, packaged it, sold it, started from scratch again, and you've done this repeatedly. And so my question is, in cobbling together the elements of what is a great company, a company that could potentially be sold, what are those critical elements? Mm. (laughs) That's the million-dollar question. (laughs) That is the million-dollar question. I think that fundamentally, it's got to be something that has repeatable processes that can be managed and run by other people. If it's just all about you, it's sort of hard to consider that necessarily a company. That's sort of just a, a, you're a consultant. So I think that those kinds of identifying the sort of repeatable processes within the business and then knowing how to inspire people to sort of manage those processes independent of you, I think is, is critical. 
one of the things that we look for in the CEOs of the portfolio companies that we've invested in is their ability to hire, train, and retain great management teams. And if they struggle to do that, it almost inevitably turns out bad. But the people who can do that and scale themselves succeed. So ironically, it's often the owner that doesn't look like they're working that hard, <laughs> that is sometimes the owner who's creating a really great company because their focus is on empowering and turning on other people to run elements of the business in a consistent way. And you know, in the restaurant business, there's nothing worse than going in and having a phenomenal experience because the owner is on the line and right. then going back and the owner's not there and the food sucks, For right? Sure. And that's the case for a lot of restaurants, as you well know. But those sort of owners, especially chef-led restaurants who know how to put together teams that can execute phenomenal product, whether they're there or not, you know, those are real companies. It's all about people and processes. In almost every other industry, I think there are successful models out there to work off of. And I would say that in the franchise model, plenty of successful models there. But in the independent restaurant space, you really don't see it. And you actually have experience as an independent restaurant or one of your many ventures was a restaurant. I'm curious to know, as someone that served the industry for quite a while, he worked on the hotel side of hospitality with your father becoming an independent restaurateur. What did you learn about the business that you didn't know before doing the venture and then walking away from that and from exiting that venture? What were the lessons you walked away with? So first of all, the first flagship restaurant that I opened, 1997 is when we opened, and it still is open. And actually, I still own 100% of that one restaurant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Downtown San Francisco, E&O Kitchen and Bar, mm -hmm. 295 seats, banquet facilities, the whole thing. And that was the flagship. And then subsequently opened five more units and had varying degrees of success across those units. First of all, what I found to be fundamentally critical was cost control, right? In the end of the day, the restaurant business is strikingly thin margin, right? It's a penny business. And so figuring out how to drive our overall food costs down, that was a critical element of it. But then what I learned is that there are so many dynamics involved in location selection. I had locations that suffered because staff turnover was just so high. We opened a restaurant in Marin County. It was so hard to retain a great team. And that restaurant suffered because of that. And then there were other locations in cases where it was just a function of sort of slightly inconvenient parking, <laughs> you know, which sort of put a damper on shoulder periods. So the San Francisco restaurant happens to work because it's right next to a big parking lot. You know, Every day part is productive. And I learned that there are so many subtle dynamics that can lead to the success or failure of an independent restaurant. But in the end of the day, it's just the number of activities happening within certainly a big box restaurant is striking. I always used to describe it to people as you're basically running a just-in-time manufacturing operation in the back end of a theater, right? And the whole <laughs> damn thing is run by a bunch of 20-year-olds who are on their way somewhere else. <laughs> right, so pulling that off, pulling that off is just one of the hardest things in the world, I think. 
I know that fear. The fear of losing everything, or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. And again, having graduated from Cornell and having just this breadth of experience, what do you think the best operators that you've seen have in common? What are the qualities that you see? Because not every restaurant, I mean, I've got to tell you, man, I've talked to a bunch of restaurateurs and I don't know anyone that's had just hit after hit after yeah. hit without exception. Wolfgang Puck is close to restaurants. And so understanding that there is no guarantee, right? But there are successful restaurateurs who do close restaurants. What are the qualities of those successful restaurateurs? At least in my experience, I think that there's sort of a depth of character in the product that they produce, right? So there's a way, it's not always a script or a story, but there's something thematic about their concepts that are deeper than just, oh, I'm going to open a cool Italian restaurant and get a designer to put the right colors on the wall. They think it through. They tell a story with the experience, right? So they understand that in the end of the day, it's all about guest experience. And then it's just got to have great food. I mean, that was one of the things my dad taught me. And he had started a restaurant chain himself. For him, it was funny. For him, it was parking and food. <laughs> he said, if you have good parking and you have great food, it's going to work out. You just sort of got to stick with those themes. But it seems like the really good ones are, you think of the rich Melmans of the world, right? There's just, there's quality of concept. There's something that there's an experience when you step into their places that's special. And they pull it off with the human factor, too, in the way they deliver the service. And the food is almost always great. They sound so simple, but as you well know, they're hard. It's really right. hard to do that. We serve Southern cuisine and specialized in Cajun and Creole. I was born and raised in Southern Louisiana. And we used to have Louisiana natives come in all the time. And they would say, you know, my grandmother makes better gumbo. And I would say, I'm sure she does. Have her come out. Let's see her run through 100, 200 covers tonight. <laughs> And we'll see how she holds up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because it's not about consistency, right? It's about consistency at scale. Exactly. And especially like, you know, be careful what you wish for, because once you are incredibly busy, the operation doesn't get any easier. It only gets harder because it's an incredibly human enterprise. Patron by patron, employee by employee, service by service, dish by dish. Yeah. With points of leakage everywhere. I mean, I remember one of the things I learned early on was to have a daily food cost tracker, super simplified Excel spreadsheet where I'd have the team enter the value of all of the product that was received that day and then the net food sales for that day. And over the course of a month, it would sort of give you a guideline on what's happening in food costs. And we had a spike in food costs and finally figured out after some heavy investigation that the closing dishwasher's cousin was on the janitorial (laughs) team and figured out how to tap out the hinges on the walk-in that held the meats and was grilling steaks and shrimp. 
at four o'clock in the morning. Right? Living just, his best it, life. <laughs> yeah, it caused a, you know probably a four point rise in food costs until mm-hmm. it was captured. We had another case where the janitorial team, same kind of structure, filling up garbage bags with shrimp and steaks, throwing them in the garbage can, and then a, their buddy would drive up in a pickup truck and pick up the plastic bag full of raw meat and shrimp. You know, it's just like so many ways to get hurt. It's a hard business to run. Boy, hats off to all of you independent restaurant operators out there. I think you bring up like a very teachable moment, which is, and look, this was my career for, I would say, the better half of it, was we were running P&Ls every period. So that two weeks into the following period, I would get a P&L and there's nothing I can do about it, right? There's because you can do about it. too much time has passed, right? I am now in the midst of another terrible PNL that I won't be able to figure out for another month to six weeks. You've got to track your numbers weekly. I think you talk to any independent restaurateur and you say, this is a game of pennies. And they'll say, absolutely. And you'll say, you've got to watch your numbers. And they'll say, absolutely. How often do you get a PNL? About every four to six weeks. <laughs> exactly. And it's one of those things where having an infrastructure in place certainly helps. But I think you illustrate a beautiful point, which is it can be as, as simple as an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. The, the mastering of the skill comes from the doing, not from the developing this overall system to get it done. Totally. Most independent restaurants, if you really look at it, have a very high rate of inventory turnover, right? So it's not like a manufacturing operation where you might turn your inventory five times a year. We turn our inventory constantly because it's mostly fresh. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that, that means at any given time or any given day, the product that's sort of coming into the restaurant that you paid for is largely going to result in sales over the subsequent four or five days. And so if you just plug in what you received and what you sold, even though that's not specifically timed up over the course of about four or five days, it's stunning how that number trends to what will turn out to be your exact food cost when you run the P&L. And in that way, you can sort of in real time see where it's trending. So if suddenly you're taking in a lot more product than you're selling, the alarm bell should go off there's leakage somewhere or there's a yield loss or portion sizes have gone crazy, but you immediately know there's a problem and you can jump on it. And it's such a simplified way. So I think, yeah, running a restaurant is full of so many activities, thousands of activities. It's overwhelming that you got to figure out what are some of the simple, clear sort of real-time indicators that you can set up that just give you a warning before it's too late. Because most restaurants can't afford to have a six-week disaster in cash flow. They got to be on top of it. Which I think is a very interesting segue to bring us into present day. So now you helm Thayer Ventures, which is a VC firm focused on innovation in the hospitality industry. So in an industry that is incredibly difficult to service, to forecast, right? You have acquired a crystal ball and are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the future of this industry. And so I want to start out with a really basic question, which is, is now the best time or the worst time to be investing in the industry? Mm, Absolutely the best time. Maybe the best time in a generation, if not just in the last several years. For us, we consider hospitality, we call it travel, capital T, right? So it includes 
all of hospitality, transportation, food service, some entertainment tech and so forth. And this is a multi-trillion dollar global value chain when you consider all of the different industries that are within that. It's an industry segment or sector that's been growing faster than global GDP for decades and is likely to continue to. It's historically been resistant to the adoption of technology. It's been very sort of human heavy, doesn't have a lot of great, interesting software in the value chain. I think most people would agree with that. But that's been changing. COVID turned out to be and continues to be one of the most disruptive events in the history of the travel industry more broadly. And I think most of the operators and suppliers, think hotel companies, airlines, restaurant operators, found themselves largely caught flat-footed and lacking agility when this hit. And so what we've seen is that the industry has started to think about tech and innovation as a absolutely mission-critical gotta-have as opposed to a nice-to-have. So pre-pandemic, people were innovating, they were starting to look at new things, but you know everybody was more or less happy because the markets were working just fine. All of a sudden now, people are testing things, they're piloting. A lot of staff has been furloughed at, at the big corporations so that they're looking to outsource more. And that has all led to just a real surge of activity in tech companies serving travel and hospitality. And a lot of investors have come over and begun to realize that. So we're seeing more and more investor activity in the category as well. So it's actually probably the most exciting time, certainly in a generation, in my view. Well, and I think what really lubes the gears is the fact that consumers who have been largely inflexible for at least my entire lifetime are more pliable than they have ever been ever. They walk into a restaurant. It's a new service model. They're flexible. They're getting less flexible by the day, but still in this moment, they're very flexible. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of data that has shown digital adoption of different types of services spiking. And first time adoption of digital services, think banking, grocery, meal delivery, all of those things during COVID experience an incredible acceleration of adoption. And once people try those things, they say, why am I standing in line at a bank? And so all of a sudden the consumer behavior has changed and there, people are switching brands and it becomes more dynamic. And I think we're seeing that in every category, not to mention the fact that, frankly, the rising consumer is just growing up as a digital native. They're more comfortable with taking the hotel model with automated check in. They don't necessarily want to stand in line at the front desk and wait to be checked into a room. They want to use their device to go directly to their room. So more and more of that is happening in every industry. And it's very, very interesting. Frankly, in many ways, it's a net positive for operators because you can leverage that technology to use less labor. And labor is, as we know, in the restaurant business in particular, is one of our highest cost and most difficult controllables. So the extent to which we can use technology to manage that better, we can be more profitable as operators. Well, there's this overall realignment of values, right? Both from an internal and external perspective. When you look at the millennials and the subsequent generations, they don't define hospitality in the way that we do. Hospitality for them isn't being walked through the menu. It's that when they want that second drink, they can press a button and it appears within moments. They are a more expeditious bunch, right? Yes, and, they are. and when and they uh, want to pay, 
they don't want to have to wave their hand in the air to get the server to come over. And frankly, if you think about that whole process, you want your server serving somebody else, not necessarily playing shuttle with somebody's credit card and waiting in line at a point of sale device. And you see it in, in Europe and other parts of the world. Everybody's so much more comfortable with pay at table. And that unlocks a lot of labor time. I would assume that you're asking yourself the same question that we are as active operators, which is what is hospitality? And then what is just purely transactional? And how do you separate the two in the mind of the consumer? That's very difficult. A great example in the lodging category. So we're investors in a company called Sonder, mm -hmm. right? Sonder operates alternative accommodations type assets, but branded. And so with the rise of Airbnb, the whole category of the vacation rental, the, what we call the alternative accommodations, really started to come into its own. And companies like Sonder began to professionalize and create hospitality brands around that stay experience, but they're totally automated. So a stay at a Sonder does not involve human contact. So is that a hospitality experience or is it right. a completely automated technical experience? Well, you ask a, a Gen Z traveler or a millennial traveler staying in a Sonder, they think it's a wonderful hospitality experience because humans piss them off. When they walk into a Marriott hotel and they're constantly directed to engage with more humans, it bothers them. Where for a lot of baby boomers, that high touch component of lodging was a critical part of the hospitality experience and staying in a totally automated sonder is going to feel cold to them. So you're right. That whole attitude about what is hospitality is shifting and smart operators are staying in tune with that shift. Well, and you're even seeing it from the employee's perspective. Like it's hard to recruit people that don't want to be actively involved in transactions. No one wants to facilitate transactions. They want more meaning in their life. And so it's about redefining the roles, I would say, within hotels and within restaurants so that they are able to grasp some meaning from their work experience in those places. Absolutely. I completely agree. So, yeah, you're right. It's not just about reducing the number of human hours it takes to deliver experience, but it's also redefining how those human hours are used so that the people sort of giving their time find more in the job. We have another portfolio company of ours called Lifehouse Hotels, which is a completely reinvention of the small hotel operation and uses technology in that way. So like what historically would be a general manager of a hotel who spends a significant amount of their time managing all of the people in the back office doing accounting tasks in a Lifehouse Hotel, that person is a community manager and they spend their time out in the lobby, greeting guests and engaging. Mm -hmm. It's a much more interesting and fulfilling hospitality experience than, you know, the former ways. And it redefines that role in a way that's more meaningful, but it also radically reduces costs for the operator. You launched an $80 million fund in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> ballsy move. <laughs> and, I, and I'm curious to know, you obviously walked into that with intention, with optimism, but with intention in a very uncertain time. I would assume that you walked into that with a very clear definition of what is a great investment. What is a great investment? Well, a great investment is an investment in a great company. A great company is a company that is operating in a large and expanding market 
very important. A lot of people will think companies are super cool. And then when you really dig in, you find that they're operating in small addressable markets, which limits how fast and how big they can get. So market's the first component. The second component is that it's a company that solves a pain point, especially a lot of young entrepreneurs will say, oh, I've got a really cool idea. And we'll sort of describe their idea, but it doesn't start that way. It starts with recognizing First, some sort of friction or pain point in a value chain, whether it's a consumer engagement value chain or a business to business value chain, something that's broken, not working, inefficient and painful. So solving that, right, a company that's playing in a big market, the solve of that problem is novel and defendable. So obviously it can't be something that everybody else can do because then you just get a flood of competition, which will reduce margin. So, right, think big market sort of heavy pain point, novel solution with lots of competitive advantage and barriers to competitive threat and so forth. All of those three things sort of set up the category of a great investment. And then the next components, at least in my view, it's about the unit economics that somewhere when you get down to the level of the transaction, you can tease out strong margins, right? Otherwise, what's it for? And then the final thing, of course, which is In the end of the day, maybe the most important is the team. It's got to be a great team. And a great team doesn't necessarily mean a team that's done it before. But you know, you meet those founder CEOs. They're young men and young women who have just what it takes to be leaders, to build teams. And that becomes critical. In fact, we've had more great ideas go sideways because of weak teams and more mediocre ideas turn out fantastic because of great teams. So it all comes down to people in the end of the day. But another thing for people who are starting businesses, I talk about this a lot when I'm talking to students in particular, there's another component to the story of a business and it's progress. A lot of people forget to talk about the progress they're making. And at least when you're talking to investors, it's great evidence that those entrepreneurs who can figure out how to make progress, just move the ball down the field. That's a real special quality. And whenever you're doing any business, whether it's starting a restaurant or starting a software company, you're always making progress. So talk about that when you're talking to investors or talking to other folks, even employees, because progress is infectious. It provides evidence that you can actually advance the ball, which is critical. I didn't read everything you've ever written online, but I probably read most of it. <laughs> I did. And you're, you're not an op- sleep enough. <laughs> <laughs> you're an optimist at heart, which really attracted me to you and your efforts and your career. And I'm curious to know if we were choose to focus on the blessings that have come out of the pandemic, mm. what lessons should the hospitality industry take away from the last 19 months? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. For me, the great lessons are all about the opportunity for innovation and change and growth. I think what's so exciting about the interface of technology and real world industries like food service and hospitality and other elements of travel is that we actually get a chance to rethink the way the whole thing is done. In the early days of tech, the first wave was all about tools. And as companies, we could use those tools to simply improve existing processes and make them more efficient. And that was great. And that created a huge wave of terrific software companies. But we now live in a world where entrepreneurs 
are reinventing industries. They're rethinking the way things work. I gave the example of Sonder and Lifehouse is just two companies that are rethinking the way things work. And I think that we've seen that innovation even happening in food service, whether you think about some of the companies that are doing home meal replacement stuff, or you could say some of the delivery companies sort of innovated and worked against it, but I'm not so sure that's true. That's just sort of a scale play. But I think that one of the lessons that we've learned, one of the takeaways I think we can take with us over the next several years is that just because we've done something a certain way for the last 25, 35, 55 years doesn't mean that that's the best way or that that's the way we have to do it going forward. We can be creative. We can be inventors. We can test ideas. To me, that's exciting. We saw through the pandemic that we can all come together and love each other, but that certainly is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly, certainly not. But I will say that the industry has come together in a way that I have never seen. My career was defined by an aggressively competitive nature. Mm -hmm. I held everything close to the chest, you know, mm -hmm. only talked about the good times, never talked about the struggles, never gave away my secrets. And I do think that the community has been blown wide open. And this yeah. is definitely, and I hope it lasts, an era of open communication, vulnerability, and camaraderie. Yeah, no, that's well said. That's well said. You have a crystal ball. You are surrounded by change makers. And when you look at the industry over the next five to 10 years, where do you see the next big areas for disruption? Well, broadly, let me define the industry sort of in that world of capital T travel, which includes food service, but predominantly in our world, I think we're at the early days of some really interesting things happening around payments, not just in the way consumers pay for things, but the way businesses pay for things, the way banks manage capital and money. I think that's really interesting. We're going to see an explosion of innovations around that. It could happen fast in the consumer space. And so operators, restaurant operators are going to want to be savvy to the different kinds of payment methods that are gonna start flying through the door. And it's not just Venmo. I think that's super interesting. That's Chris Himmeter. For more on his company, visit ThayerVentures.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.